and welcome to all those that watch by live stream wherever you might be in the world. We're in a series called Your Life Matters. That's important to know. And last week we began, we talked about the church as a family. We said you're birthed physically into a natural family. I mean, the stork didn't bring anybody. You came, you came into a, a, a family, a natural family, and you're born again into a spiritual family. Okay? So, hopefully, you got a good identity from your family. Tragically, many don't. Broken homes, broken lives, broken marriages, broken kids, broken self-image. But the idea was that you were supposed to capture your identity from your family. I believe in you. You can do this. You've got great potential, a great future, great gift, great excellence comes out of a family believing in you, affirming you, encouraging you. Instead of you'll never be anything, you'll never amount to anything, you're never going to have anything. If that's what you came out of, it destroys your sense of self-worth, and you'll look for it some other way, usually in a negative way. But when you're born again into the family of God, God expects you to get a brand new identity. You become a new creation. You're His kid. He's got His Word. He tells, He says, this is who you are to me. This is your identity. Now walk like it, act like it, think like it, talk like it. And it ought to be a place where you get affirmed, you get encouraged. And if you get broken, you get picked up. You get, you get made well. You get a little love, a little healing, a little compassion, a little mercy. And you try again. You go for it. This is not a time to beat people up. It's a time to lift people up in a family. So I came from a broken home. I wanted my kids to have a solid home where I believed in them. And they'll never be on Oprah saying, my daddy didn't believe in me. Daddy was never home. Ain't never going to happen. I'll come back from the dead and haunt them. It ain't going to happen. I mean, I, my wife and I have given our lives for those children, and not a day we didn't believe in them, love them, affirm them, and keep preaching to them about a great future you have. Mom and Daddy are laying our lives down so you can have what we didn't have, go where we didn't get the privilege to go, and become a lot more than we've ever achieved. And you better not drop the baton, because there's greatness in you. Now that's what God wants you to know today, no matter what natural family you came out of. Hey, you're. You're in a race, and you've been equipped, you've got a Godfather who loves you, believes in you, redeemed you, and says, now come on, anything's possible. You've got unlimited potential, because I'm an unlimited God. Quit making me small, God says. Think big. Now, if you didn't come out of a family like that, you need to get into a family that does think like that. And you can catch that. If I take you to an infectious ward at a hospital, and you aren't protected, in time, you will catch that virus or disease, right? Being exposed to it. Well, it's the same in a church. It's the same in a family. If you come into a, if you come into a place of vision, creative thinking, excellence, uh, you can do this. In time, that will affect you. It'll affect your thinking and behavior. But if you hang around negative people, small-minded people, critical people, problem-finding problem people, you'll become the same thing just like them. So it's really important to pick your family, your spiritual family, very, very carefully. So we begin part two today, and I'm going to talk about the qualities necessary to have impact in the world as God's family. We're His agents to, to take good news. Well, what does that require to be effective? Well, you hang on for the ride. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, they said, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter said, you are Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this did not come to you by flesh and blood, natural human learning, but by revelation from my Father in heaven. And I say that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of the revelation of who I am, Messiah, the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody he was Messiah. One more verse, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. And you know, folks, today some of you have stayed long enough in the ditch you're in, the rut you're in, the place you're in. For God's sake, it's time to move. It's time to move your thinking, shift your thinking, your attitude, your behavior. You've gone around this mountain long enough. Break camp. Advance. Go into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Now go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he'd give to you, to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Now, any reasonable study of the Bible makes it clear that when Jesus spoke about building His church, He wasn't talking about programs. He wasn't talking about the place the church would meet in. He wasn't talking about the events that occur Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. He had specific understanding when He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And over the last 2,000 years, a lot of changes have taken place. Initially, the church was born, if you read the book of Acts, in a surge of power, and they were remarkably ineffective in what they had to say and do. Their impact was significant. They were not educated, high-dollar high people. They were just common people, mostly unlearned and ignorant. Uh, they didn't have to have an MBA to become a Christian. They didn't have to have all knowledge. They had very little. They just had a clear revelation of who Jesus was. I'm thinking we're making Christianity so tough, so wild, so bizarre that it's kind of like, wow, how, how hard is it to go to heaven? I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world. You know, it's, I hitched a ride through Jesus. Now, what's hard is living on earth. Please, staying married, raising kids, uh, earning a living, building a business, building a church, uh, dealing with the opposition and setbacks and people and weird people and the attacks of the enemy. Going to heaven's a piece of cake. You can be dumb as a rock and go to heaven if, you can, if you're smart enough to accept Jesus. That's all it takes. Quit making this so hard. If these simple people could turn the world upside down, for God's sake, we ought to make a significant impact. I mean, really, we just, out of common sense, we should. And so, uh, they, they started this way. There was insight and understanding these people could communicate to those who wanted to listen to what they had to say. They were so effective that it's clearly evident they contributed ultimately to the downfall of the Roman Empire. So it was a simple but effective church 
that seemed to demonstrate everything Jesus said it would be. People were very intimidated by this church, scared of it. That's why it went under such persecution. God was so much in evidence in the way they lived and conducted themselves that although they had favor with people, a lot of those people chose not to join them because they were afraid. They knew that if you become part of those people, change could happen in your life. Their lives were mostly characterized by joy. They had a deep conviction, a deep sense of purpose about everything that they did. And most of that effectiveness in the church was determined by the mobilization of lay people, just average working men and women. There were only a couple notable apostles even alive. There was only a few of them. So most of the work went to just regular moms and dads and people. But the spread of the church was determined by the fact that every individual in the life of that family, that church family, understood they had a significant role to play in the outworking of God's plan. God doesn't have any spare parts in His body. Every member is a minister. Everybody in the family of God has a part to play. Someone is the eye, someone's the hand, someone's the foot, but we're all connected to the one body. But there are no unimportant parts in your body. If you think so, hurt one and see if it doesn't affect the whole body. I had a bone spur taken out of my shoulder, you know, the first surgery I ever had in my life, and they knocked me out for about an hour and took a little calcium bone spur out of there that was pinching the muscle, and shoot fire. Boy, for, for, for two months, my whole I, I couldn't sleep. This left side of the body wanted to go to its comfort zone. It couldn't because it hurt. And boy, when, you, when one member suffers, all parts of the body suffer, right? That's, and spiritually, it's the same way. So we're all connected. So, most of these people met in homes. They owned no buildings. They didn't own no buildings because that was ungodly. There are some people that say church shouldn't have any buildings. That a moron with an IQ of a kumquat potato that would say such a thing. They had the Romans seizing their property like the Nazis did the Jews in the Holocaust. They were, they were stripped of their rights. They were persecuted, tortured, imprisoned, beaten, and killed. They didn't have any rights. So, a, a very, very few of them had large homes. Several did. There were several wealthy people mentioned in the church who opened their homes to become churches, and that's how they went around a city in those days until they could have a place to meet. They gathered to hear apostles teach from house to house. They worshiped. They prayed. They had communion. They gave offerings. They shared the Word. They behaved differently. They loved one another. They invested in one another. And when they spoke, there was an effectiveness in their witness. This church wasn't relegated to Sunday morning. Uh, they weren't bound by four walls. And the message went everywhere they went. Church went with these people. They carried that good news. Everywhere these people gathered, it would be characterized by the presence of God. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So in reality, you can't say you're going to church because you are the church. This meeting today is a gathering of the church. This building summit is not the church. It is the people. When you say the church burned down, no, it didn't. You're fine. A building burned down. Summit is just a building, but you, we the people of God, we're the church. Now, from about 300 A.D. onward, the church began to weaken. It started adapting and adopting pagan practices, and its influence and power started to diminish. But at different moments throughout history, God would step in 
re-energize the church, renew it, and give it fresh perspective and power, which gives us fresh perspective on what he meant when he said, I will build my church. During the 60s, back in my generation, tens of thousands came into the kingdom of God through what was called the Jesus Movement. And these were hippies, long-haired hippies, brawless girls, face-painted people with their guitars. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear a flower in your hair. Bring back the old days. <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary, the anti-war songs. So all these people had no place in the traditional church, so God moved outside the church. And they were getting baptized in the Pacific Ocean by the thousands. And the traditional church, they didn't know what we're going to do with these people. They're not like us. They look different. They behave differently. They don't dress like we do. And you know, the church today, just like then, always panics with change. We like things to remain the same. And uh, it's sad because the only thing that doesn't change, God says, I change not. And His Word never changed. Truth. Truth never changes. But everything else is constantly changing around us. So, uh, we believe that what happens to you internally will ultimately affect you externally in time. But God starts on the inside first before He ever works on the outside. So, the church has got to be flexible enough to accommodate what God might be doing. Are you flexible? Are you stiff as a rod? See, God says, stay flexible. And I'll show you, he uses, he says, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. An old wineskin has lost its dexterity. It's not malleable. It's brittle. And so when wine ferments, they didn't have refrigeration for some of you grape juice people. So when wine fermented, it, it gives off gas, it expands, and it would split that goat skin, that wineskin, and the, all the wine would be lost. Jesus said, you can't put a new thing I'm doing in the old thing, it'll rupture. And boy, that is so true. Getting people to adapt and be flexible enough to embrace something new. I was watching a church on TV just a minute ago. It always helps me when I feel like I'm worthless and not any good to stay in the ministry another week when I watch it. And I, I said, when I, was, when I was in high school, that's exactly the way they did it. Not one thing has changed. And I said, a hundred years after I'm dead, you'll go back to that church. They'll still be doing it the same way. And I said, there hasn't been a touch of new wine, new thinking in, in, in a millennium in there. It's just sad because we don't like change. If that's the music we, we, we had, then that's what we're going to keep. Now, what was interesting about these, these young people that came in, uh, they didn't like the music that was being sung. It was stiff. It was boring. I mean, why would people want to sing songs to God with a music style that was 200 years old? Well, are you not sure? You afraid to vote? I, uh, I don't. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of how to, how to phrase this. The, the music that was 200 years old was appropriate in the culture of the day. It was. But I don't live 200 years back there, and music is just another style. It changed right? When Martin Luther, who was a beer-drinking Lutheran monk, wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. That was the raciest, off-the-charts, out-of-bounds music that came out of a song sung in a beer pub. Well, we see there, 
Use Google. You might learn something. He took a song sung in a beer pub, and he put godly lyrics to it, and it was better than a Vatican chant. Those old, deaf, nasty, unmelodic chants they used to use in the Victorian age. And, and music changed. When Billy Sunday came along, you know Billy Sunday, the evangelist, White Sox baseball player, got saved by the Salvation Army on the street, a drunk. He changed music. He put trombone players, Homer Rotahaver, he, he jacked up the music double beat, and he had crusades everywhere. Billy Sunday and uh, Frank Sinatra sang about him. He, 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 was, he was an avid evangelist. My mind's racing back to my grandfather who got saved under this guy back in 1921. Well, I can't relate to the music my kids like. My parents didn't like my music. They said it's trash. And then I listened to my kids, and I didn't like their music, smashing pumpkins. I said, how about the Temptations? How about, how about Smokey Robinson? How, how about Bob Seger and a Silver Bullet Band? You know, how about Ike and Tina Turner? I mean, that was when God was really moving. I, I like that. You hear what I'm saying, but remember that music style was outdated, and these newly saved Jesus people wrote new music, and they sang it to a different beat, and ministers sometimes across the nation preached about the devil being in their music. So I'm saying become flexible enough to change with the culture around us. And by the way, there isn't one verse of Scripture in the Old or New Testament that tells you how to sing music. It doesn't tell you if it's a 4-4 beat, a 3-4 beat. It doesn't say. So would you just keep your preference to yourself? right? Don't preach that as a doctrine. Don't say that's the devil's beat. Where is that in Scripture? If it's not in Scripture, shut up. That's just your biasness, your prejudice. Leave it alone. Don't bind people. David played a guitar, a harp. We don't know what beat he used when he wrote those psalms. He might have wore leather pants. You don't know. Just say. I'm thinking people do not think. They come to church and they get cloned. And that— Oh, that's a Baptist clone. Oh, that's a Pentecostal clone. Oh, that's a Lutheran clone, right? Don't you do that. Don't you let anybody muzzle you and put that straight jacket on you and say, well, we've got to be white church, black church, Hispanic church, Pentecostal, Lutheran. No, just be a Jesus person. Be open to anything God wants to do. Stay flexible. Stay flex. You know, don't let everything shake you up. And if, if the new style of music is effective in reaching people for Jesus and young people and young adult people, and it's not my particular style that I particularly like, you think I'm going to argue over God doing something really good? I just suck it up. When I go outside and get on satellite radio, I'll put it on the 60s. <laughs> but I'm thrilled that it's being effective reaching people. I mean, you know, in our day, we had the choir with their pretty little robes. We, we, everything was so structured, and we would come up on the stage and say, let us all stand together. Let us sing the first, second, and third verse of hymn 376, Blessed Assurance. Would you stand as we sing? And everything was choreographed. I love what we're doing a whole lot better than that. And that was okay in 1940, 1950. But that doesn't cut it today, and nobody's listening to that today. So why are you singing it today? Because I'm not going to change. Yeah, that's right, and you're not going to be effective 
and you're not going to fulfill what God says is getting His mission out there. So, these folks brought change in that everybody didn't like. See, you never change truth, but you change the way you present the truth so that it's meaningful to the people of a culture you're sent to communicate with. George Whitfield was banned from preaching in churches, so he went to open-air meetings. That was an abomination in his day. It was outside the church, and thousands came to hear him preach and were converted to Christ. Jesus said, new wine is for new wineskins. So if we're not willing to be flexible enough to change, God cannot give a significant portion of new wine to allow us to be effective. God says, you want me? You want what I'm doing? If you don't change, I can't give it to you. You can go to heaven, but you'll stay dead, and you'll attract the dead. So the Western church has often become boring and irrelevant, ineffective, and it always needs at some point in time a reformation. Uh, Dr. Paul Ratter was a uh, former head of the Salvation Army, and he did an interview in the L.A. Times a couple of years ago. I kept it. He was asked by the reporter, are most churches looking inward? He said, I perhaps should only comment that we certainly see the necessity of working towards the church being turned inside out. If I could choose my own function in ministry, I would like to be a reformer. It'll take people of authority, gift, and skill to enable the church to see where God wants it to go and turn it around from the inside out. The early disciples had a message, a motivation, and a power to go into the world and transform it through the bringing of the influence of God's kingdom to every community they encountered. The tendency of the church today is to be self-centered, self-concerned, their own self-interest, and ignore the fact the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Our concern at the Salvation Army has been what's happening on a street. You're not commissioned to serve just a small congregation in the corner of a community. You're commissioned to that whole community, everybody on the street, everybody in the hospital, everybody in the prison. It's part of your parish. You're responsible to reach people and serve them in love, compassion, and the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. Wow. It doesn't matter whether Republican or Democrat, black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. That's our parish out there, our San Antonio, our world, our neighboring cities. Everybody out there is fair game. Now, change is going to come whether you like it or not. And the change I'm speaking of is the focus of getting the church people out into the world, telling your story, to come up with a creative idea to solve complex problems. What I know is this, the proportion of life we enjoy is going to be determined by the measure we're willing to give it away. If God gives us resources, if God gives us opportunity, if God gives us capacity, and we don't give it away, you will die. You will die. Now, let me give you five truths about the church. First, ownership. Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's not the pastor's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not even your church. It's His. Second, authorship. He said, I will build my church. So without Him, you can do nothing. So we have to be a people completely dependent on Him for His life, for His resources. Then we become effective. Number three, there's absolute certainty in the church. I will. The I will of God is the creative Word of God. And if God says, I will, nothing will ever change that. It doesn't matter what opposition comes in this country, what liberties are taken away, what administration reigns or is elected, what new laws are enacted or changed, there will be a glorious church for sure because God said, I will. It will never end. 
Uh, you know, we, we've lived with a generation of just hunkering down, oh, this is it, this is the end time. That all started when I was in the 60s, and it just keeps on going and keeps on going, and it's kind of like, oh, oh, help me. I love the songs of the Reformation, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. That was real Bible. Oh, not for this wussy generation. Just a few more weary years, and I'll fly away. You see the picture? Wow, have we screwed it up or what? And so when God says, I will, laws get changed, laws get abolished, bad things happen. It looks bad in the culture. God says, I don't care what they do. I'll override it all in the end, and I will have a great church. The church will never go out of business. It is His eternal purpose, He says in Ephesians 3. And it's built on a foundation upon the rock of who Jesus is. He will build His church. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the Son of God, God in flesh who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Every religion, false religion, believes in Jesus. They're not atheists. They believe Jesus was a good teacher, a good prophet. Even the Muslims believe that. But when you say He is God, that is the dividing line. That's the key issue of who Jesus is to you and me. He's not just a good teacher. I am Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed to be God, and that's what got Him killed. And that is the dividing line in religion and Christianity. And you want to you draw a line real quick? Do you draw one on that? And then uh, number five, it speaks about durability. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, think with me a minute. The gates don't fight. Gates don't move. Gates are stationary. Gates are defensive weapons. So, he's thinking about the gates of hell will not prevail against us, meaning the church is on the offense, taking the attack to the enemy. That's why he says, put on the whole armor of God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. God gives us authority to bind and loose. He gives us a sword, an attack weapon, which is His Word to declare it. So when we push back sickness, when we push back poverty, when we push back every circumstance set against us to fulfill our dream or our destiny, we have satanic opposition. It comes through people. It comes in thoughts to our mind. We have to attack that. And He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. It shows the church moving out, taking land, conquering, and making impact. It's not a church huddled looking for a cabin in Beulah land. It's on the attack. Uh, I wish I'd have been raised with that when I grew up. I, that appeals to me. And this is the mindset. This is the kind of church I want to be part of. The early church was effective because it was empowered. They were effective because they actually believed what they said. They were willing to sell everything, lose everything, and give even their lives for the sake of serving Jesus. I'm afraid the focus of the church today is building its own kingdom and denomination and many leaders building their own little kingdom as well. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia. It just means God's called out ones. Uh, Caesar, it wasn't a religious word, ecclesia. It wasn't a religious, it was a secular word. Caesar had an ecclesia. These were men specifically chosen to sit at his feet, to hear his word, and their responsibility was to carry that out in society. Now, that's my understanding of the role of the church. 
We're the called out ones. We're to heal the will of the Father and carry out that will in our society. It's a people vitally connected to the head who have the power of the Holy Spirit as a resource, and they take what they hear from God and His Word out into the world where Christ has given them responsibility, and they do it with effectiveness. Here's a quote I picked up a couple of weeks ago from a secular magazine, business magazine. It says, where, lab- where manual labor and routine activity once ruled, now brain power and creativity reign supreme. And I thought, no conflict of interest here. St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Meaning that when God touches the life of a human being, He doesn't just make you acceptable for heaven. He influences you so radically it affects the way you think, the way you live, the way you look at things, your perspective. And when these God-touched people looked at the world, they became solution-minded people. They weren't problem-finders. They were problem-solvers. And I thought about, do you have the mind of Christ? You know, I told you in our home, it was about, we don't talk that way. We don't think that way. And in our spiritual home, we try to snap down on negativity. It'll kill faith and confidence. What killed Israel over and over wasn't the enemy, was unbelief, just pure old unbelief. And I want a home and a house where there's great faith expect, great expectancy. So if God says, I've given you the mind of Christ, He says in uh, Philippians, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, meaning I want you to think like Jesus does. Not like you think, not like an American, not like a Caucasian, not like African-American, not like Asian or Hispanic. I want you to think like me. I want you to strategize like me. What would my attitude be? How would I think? What would my wisdom be? I mean, if God's the sum of all wisdom and knowledge, for God's sake, ain't you had a new idea in the last couple of years? When's the last time you did something for the first time? You see how dull we become when we've been given the mind of Christ? Do you think God looks at our problem, our culture, and its needs and says, I don't know what to do? I don't think so. I think He's got solutions all over this place. I just don't think you know it, and you haven't asked for it. Let this mind. I don't want to think the way my family trained me to think unless it's in agreement with God's Word. But if it is, I want to think that way. And so my job is to renew your mind through God's Word so you think like Him. Well, I don't know. My brother said, well, my teacher said, well, my professor said, what did God say? What's your foundation here, dude? You know, let this mind be in you. If you're going to change the world, if you're going to be effective in reaching this world, you've got to renew your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans chapter 12 says. You know, when you put a form down and you pour concrete in it, that form will allow the concrete to harden, and it'll take the shape of the form. God says, I want you to be not conformed to this world, but transformed. And to transform means to go over the form. I want you to step out of that box you're in, and I want to liberate your thinking like me. Some of you need to get out of your cultural racial box and get out of your political box. God's working in every part. He got people scattered everywhere. Elijah said, I, only I am left. The world's going to hell. And God said, wake up, Elijah. I got 7,000 people in that village alone that haven't bowed the knee. I got a bigger church and plan than you ever thought of. So shut up. Wake up. Let's go. Get up. 
And that, you hear people all the time saying everything's gone. God's got people scattered everywhere in business, in the arts, in media, in Hollywood. He's got people planted, little place people there. Might be a little maid in, in, a, in a Syrian general's house who's got leprosy, and she's a slave, and she's been captured, and she's keeping the house, and she's God's agent to touch this man, get him to Elijah to be healed of leprosy and to be transformed in the kingdom of God. God just used a little housekeeper. God scatters people like salt in a salad all over the place. Let God decide where to use you, but everybody's got a part, right? So, they shook the world. They had the mind of Christ. Well, my daddy always said, well, who are you going to think like, your daddy? Or are you going to think like God? My, my, my God trans, transcends every teacher, relative, authority that's ever been in my life, and I've had some good ones. But it doesn't matter who they are. His thinking, his word transforms what my daddy thinks, what my uncle told me, what my mother told me. We love and respect them, but I don't think like them. And if you want to be different, you want a different life and a different marriage, you're going to have to think different too. And you're going to be like the people you hang around. And if everybody's got measles and you walk in a measles ward, you're going to get it. And if everybody's got hope and vision and confidence and self-worth, you're going to get it. That's why I want you to hang out here and get in that Word, not just Easter and Christmas, but regularly so you, God can renew your mind. Now, let me show you uh, very briefly here uh, 10 traits of creative people because these are the traits we need to be effective as a family in reaching our world. I hope you'll hear it. You know, traditionalism, sacred cows are held in higher esteem than being effective. So the attitude of those churches is let's not change, let's not introduce new ideas into the way we do it. God forgive us. Why? Sacred cows. An organ can be a sacred cow. A robe can be a sacred cow. The way you do something, a style, a time can become a sacred cow. God doesn't demand it, and if it's not productive, you can change it. Jesus said every branch that doesn't bear fruit, cut it off. Well, we've had it for 50 years. Yeah, but it's been dead for 20. Let's, let's cut it off. It ain't working. Can we change it? Boy, you want hell to come to earth? Try that in a church. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll do it. But I'm saying, I, I understand. Boy, the enemy hates that. He loves to keep you boxed in, living small with your traditional sacred cows. When God wanted to disrupt the sacred cows of Israel, He sent John the Baptist. And he was weird. He was dressed in uh, uh, goat, camel skins. He looked like Sonny Bono in Cher. Do you remember in the old days? <laughs> and, and, he, and he ate locusts. He was a weird guy. And the people left where they were and went out to where John was. Then Jesus comes along. And they said, he's a wine-bibber, a glutton, and he hangs out with loose women. Why? Because he understood the plan. Seek and save those who are far from God. And that takes courageous people, risk takers. You turn on the TV, there's no risk taker preaching there. Not, not, not in what I was talking about, the traditional. There's no risk taker there. They're all paid for like, like pimps, already paid off, paid for. They've got their annuity program, they've got their retirement safe, and this, they're not going to rock the boat, and the board can fire them or hire them at will, so they have to dance to the tune. They're not free to be a voice, they're just an echo. What a what bondage. I'm not, I wouldn't live like that if I had to beg with a cardboard box. I wouldn't do it. And you know me enough, well enough, no, he wouldn't do it. 
I'll starve to death. I don't care, but I won't live that way. You've got to have courage to bring change. And so when you decide to go outside the church, uh, everybody that comes to church isn't going to be in your political party. Everybody in your church isn't going to be uh, the way you wish they were. Everybody's going to have some moral conditions that need adjustment by God's power and by God's grace. And if you can't handle that, then you're just going to have a stiff, dead, formal church. It'll be an all-black church, all-white church. It'll be a Democrat church, a Republican church. It'll be a fly away church. I don't know. It'll be something. But it'll be anything but what Jesus intended. Why? Because if you're going to be a voice, occasionally you get martyred. You know, you get a lot of haters. Folks don't like people who challenge the status quo. So let's take a look at 10 of them real quick, just one-liners. Number one, the people God uses to make a difference in the world and to bring change are creative in their ideas. They create ideas. They simply think of different ways to do things. Second, they're flexible. If they can't get it done one way, they'll try another way. If no is what you get, no just means you got to try another way to get it. If that door closes, try another door. If this kind of financing won't work, then let's try a more creative way to finance to make it work. The people that make the big bucks find a way to make it work. Some of us have been trained to find the problem instead of the solution. I want to be around creative people who have fresh ideas and who are flexible as opposed to tunnel vision. Number three, they're emotional and unrestrained in expressing wild ideas and dreams. Years ago, German evangelist Reinhard Bonnke, who ministered to Africa, got his team together and said, I want to build the biggest tent in the world. People said he was crazy, but he consulted with American engineers and built the largest tent in the world. It would seat 36,000, and he remained effective. A storm a couple of years later hit Cape Town with 120-mile-an-hour winds and blew it and destroyed it, put it to the ground. But I mean, so what? In heaven, Reinhardt can say, I built the biggest tent in the world. And you'll say, I was afraid to leave my living room. It was rain and fog. I didn't want to get out. The time changed. I didn't have the discipline to set the clock. <laughs> number, number four, they're visionaries, and they tend to challenge the status quo. What do you see? They force change and overrule excuses. They see things differently. They break existing rules and status quo. God said to Abraham, what do you see? Look north, look south, look east, look west. Everything you can see, I'll give it to you. So do you see a better marriage? Can you see a better future? Can you see your children doing better than you? Can you see a better, uh, a better career? Can you see a better church? Can you see it? If you can't see it, you can't have it. And God gives vision. And I wonder how many people sitting in church hadn't seen anything. My suggestion is at least hang around people with vision, and you'll at least have a chance to catch some of that. I'd rather eat the crumbs off the table of a visionary than to just sit passive and starve with no vision at all. And so God says, those that sat in darkness have seen a great light. I want, God, show me what you want me to do. Show me how big your plans for me are. Show me what is possible with your power and might. Ask God for vision. Don't accept what is. Dream big. 
Do you see? I see satellite churches. I see expansion. I see a building for our school expansion over here on the right, built right there. I see a $6 million gym with three courts and multiple offices that will attract the community in, also be resource generating for the building, as well as an outreach to the community. What, what do you see? I can see hopping on a jet and doing to a satellite summit in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or somewhere in Texas. It's going on right now all around us. And I say, what do you see? Well, it's foggy out. <laughs> Think it's going to rain some more today. <laughs> ah! I, 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 want, I want people to come up with ideas and say, Rick, got this plan. Here's how we can finance that. Here's how we can build that. Have you thought about this? It might need a little editing, but what about this? I can't think of everything. If, if, a, if a bylaw is too clunky, well, then give me a creative idea. Let's change it. Let's make it effective. It's not set in concrete. We can change it and make it. We do a lot of clunky things that I hate that we, we can change, but we need people to think like that. And boy, who, who wouldn't want to be around people? You're telling me that God's going to give all the ideas to me? No. He's given me a body, a family, and all people have a good idea. It could be a small one. It could be a big one. But it's no good if you don't express it. And if we're going to be effective reaching our community and world, we need these kind of people with these kind of qualities out there, people of vision who challenge what is and say we can do it better. Number five, they're motivated by a job well done. That's great. More than monetary satisfaction, they want to see the job done well. Number, number six, they push themselves to the limit. And believe me, these kind of folks are hard to find. Jesus said the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few, and it ain't changed in 2,000 years. These people are willing to go the distance, to get tired along the way. They give all they can, and then some. They're second-mile people. You know, most people get off after the first mile. Well, that's all I'm paid to do. Well, that's all I was asked to do. But the second-mile people go a little bit further. If a man asks you to go a mile, go two. It's and then some. Rebecca was unknown, uncelebrated, obscure until she told the servant of Abraham, I'll water your camels. He didn't even ask her. He asked for a cup of water. That was culturally the custom. She says, not only will I give you a drink of water, I'll water you 10 camels, and they hold 40 gallons each. She may run her pantyhose and mascara, but she says, I'm going to water those 10 camels out there. That's going to take her a couple hours. They didn't have water hose. Somebody, you thinking with me, get a picture of this. And the servant of Abraham said, holy Moses, wow, I just found the bride of Isaac. And she didn't know that the camel she was giving extra effort to, and she didn't have to, was carrying all her jewelry, all her clothing, all the wealth of Abraham for the beautiful gal who was going to marry Isaac and become another heir in the blessing of Abraham. She didn't have a clue. That's just who she was. I'll do it, and I'll do a little bit more. You talk about salespeople today who make a million a year versus people that make 30000 a year. Watch them. Watch how they behave. Watch how they do business. This is the floor walker. Can I help you, sir? 
Apparently not. Perhaps I could help you. <laughs> you. I have said that many times. They don't like to see me come. A couple of months ago, I bought a sport coat. It was on sale at a high-dollar store, and I said, oh, man, I like that. like the color. It fit. Needed a little bit of a, a, a alteration, and I said, I want that. And so I bought it, and the guy gave me his card. It was very pleasant. And I says, now you'll call me when it's ready. Absolutely. Well, weeks went by and weeks went by, and I never heard from anybody. And then it struck me one day, I wonder if my coat's ready. Surely it hadn't taken a month. And I call the store, and I get connected to this guy, and I tell him who I am. And I said, is my jacket ready? And he said, uh, let me go see. And he came back in a few minutes and says, oh, yeah, it's been ready, Mr. Godwin. Pause on the phone. The dark side is emerging from me. <laughs> and I'm saying, were you going to call me? Or am I supposed to get mental telepathy to know my frickin' coat is ready? <laughs> Silence on the phone. You see, I've been around the people that generate a million, a million and a half in sales in a retail store like that because they don't do that. If you buy something and they get your name and they know your size, not only will they say, it's ready, I'll bring it to you. There are high-dollar people in this city that buy a lot. You don't, you don't, can I help you? Ain't going to cut it. It's got to be, they will drive the product to the house. They will bring an, all, uh, uh, an, alt, an alterer there, a seamstress, to the, and fit you and bring it back. And they're going to generate more business than that little gas to get there is going to cost you because they're going to buy again. And you say, by the way, I picked up three things in your size that just came in for spring. I think they're going to be great. Take a look at them. Here they are. Can you see the difference in that kind of a person? I bought a pair of shoes four years ago with Randy Morrison, Speak the Word Church, Minneapolis. It was Neiman Marcus. And I had a, I had a, I, he had one of his assistants there who was the most wonderful servant, and I wanted to buy him a pair of shoes. And he, I saw him like a pair of shoes. So they didn't have it in his size. I'm sorry, we don't have it in, in his size. And I just sat there and waited. I let the silence just settle on us like fog. And I said, have you got a computer? Yes, sir. I said, you got other Neiman Marcuses in America, don't you? Uh, uh, yes, sir. I says, can you walk over there and get on that computer and tell me where that size is in America and then have it shipped to this store for this man? Uh, yes, sir. I said, you suck. I'd fire you right now. Get out of here. You, hey, man, thank you, brother. Come on, talk to me. I Give people a little bit more than they paid for, and you'll reap a whole lot more in life. It's going the extra mile. It's not, that's my, my job. I'm not paid to do that. Uh, good enough is good enough. Just put some duct tape on it, or I'll wait till Rick sees it and gets mad. No! You initiate. You go the extra mile. You take care of it. Number seven, they gather information but love diverse knowledge and unique experiences. They're always open for new information new experiences, new learning, something I didn't know. Be open to the idea there might be a truth in the Bible you never understood and never saw. Experiences available to you perhaps you've never had. 
I denied there were anything like for I was raised in that kind of a church that denied the supernatural and that I didn't believe in a word of knowledge or that God could flash something in your mind until one night on a dark runway at midnight in a twin engine airplane with my wife pregnant sitting in the back, a word of knowledge came across this unbeliever's eyes, rudder lock. And I will never, ever forget that moment. I wasn't a believer. I wasn't in faith, but God saved my life because I had put something on an airplane that I never had before, wasn't on my checklist, and I would have lost control of that airplane in about 40 seconds and killed us all. And God, I prayed before I took off, always did that, and then God went bam. And I went just, I'm white, but I went real white sitting there, whoa. Shut the engines down, got out of the airplane, called the tower and said, hey, I've got a minor problem. I'm going to fix it. There's no traffic. He said, fine. And I realized how close to death I came had it not been for rudder lock. I had heard that by other people. It's probably abused by some people, but it happened. It happened when I needed it to save my life. That was supernatural. I know that's real. And I'm simply saying that was a unique experience that I'd never had before. At least I wasn't conscious of it before. And I am now. That still happens. This is kind of good. Are you open to new ways and new experiences? I've seen auditoriums collapse under the presence of God. And I've seen some fraudulent pushing too. Come on, I know that I know the difference. But I've watched God touch people with nobody touching them. Bam. I've I've I remember I took my dad when he was about 85 to Amsterdam, and I'd asked the Holy Spirit to come. I was wild in those days. And it was in a Dutch Reformed church, and it was so demonized. A woman ran in, ripped off her clothes, and started crawling like a snake. That'll shake you up, like a snake in the front. That ain't exactly on the Baptist agenda, Daddy. And some wild, wild demonic manifestations. And I remember my dad afterwards said, I never saw anything like that. And I said, yeah, yeah I don't see it too often, Dad. I ain't real crazy about it either. But I said, you can see it does happen, demonic manifestations, but the power of God to command it to come out. And he saw that, and it was different. I mean, I'm not building a church on that, but they did it when it was necessary, and you should too. You should be open to anything that's in that Bible, but you don't demand it, you don't force it, you just, you're open to that if God suddenly starts to do something a little bit different. Number nine, they're not afraid of risk or failure. Well, even if they fail, they learn how not to do it, and they try again. You know, when you fail, you should get wisdom. Hmm. Anybody been married 50 years ought to know, I failed a few times, but I learned not to do that again. Right? That's wisdom. And uh, you young people would learn a lot from folks that stayed married a long, long time because we've all failed. And the point is, it's okay to fail, just don't keep failing. Get smarten up. Don't stay dumb. Don't just keep doing the same thing. And well, I keep behaving the same way, and I'm in my fifth marriage. Well, goody for you. Aren't you? Aren't you going to be a real gift to some some woman somewhere? My dad had five marriages. I said, Daddy, you know, he's 97 now. I said, Don't marry another woman. You suck as a husband. Do not marry anybody else. You're off the shelf. And he's still alive, you know, and still flirtatious. My sister, my, my wife <laughs> took her sister over to see my dad, and he's hitting on my sister, sister-in-law. 
What a daddy, yeah. He's 97, but he's still clicking, I guess. I, I don't know. I guess I have a good future to look forward to, huh? <laughs> I've, I'm just saying, we've tried out ideas. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. So what? Try and try again. Do something else. If it doesn't work, we'll kill it. Try something else. And last, they have a good self-image. How about you? You know, if I get my image from who loves me, who died for me, who says you're a treasure, you're of great value to me, I ought to have confidence that I am, I'm worth something. I may have a bad past. I may, have, I may have a lot of shame and condemnation, but God says, there's no condemnation to those in Christ. Now, you're forgiven. I don't have a recollection of it. You have a hope and a future. I'm with you, and I've got a great purpose for you. Before you were conceived in the womb, I knew you, called you by name, and ordained you for a great purpose for everybody in this room. So it's just a sin to sit still and let same old, same old. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.